Father Anne, when we had her on, insisted on saying it with your spirit because she's up with the current mass. But we left the church before that change happened. <laughs> yeah, some stuff should not be changed. I'm Anne McNamee Keels. And I'm Stephanie Shavera. And this is Lapsed, a podcast about growing up Catholic. And today we have a special guest with us. Mm-hmm. Nate Tinner Williams is co founder and editor of the Black Catholic Messenger, a nonprofit media publication covering stories of interest to African American Catholics. He's also a seminarian with the Josephites and a master's student in theology with the Institute for Black Catholic Studies at Xavier University of Louisiana. He became Catholic in December 2019. Welcome, Nate. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here. I'm excited you're joining us. I do feel like before we delve in too much, uh, I just want to sort of time and date stamp our podcast. Um, We are recording on Wednesday, June 1st. And the reason I want to do that is because Anne just mentioned Xavier University. And yesterday there was a shooting on your campus. And so that's just that might uh, be part of our conversation today. And I just want to check in and see how you are um, and how your community is doing before we go any further. Yeah. Uh, as far as I know, everyone's doing all right. University put out a statement clarifying, I guess, that there was no affiliation between the event where the shooting occurred and the university. It was just something that was happening on campus. They said no one from the community was was present at the shooting. No one from the university community was present at the shooting. But yeah, still obviously a horrible horrible yeah. and you know someone's dead and it's becoming a real I mean it has been a real major issue in the city all over the city yes. for a while now especially since COVID started so it's just really sad. I'm glad that most people ended up being all right but I just wanted to, to start there but we are going to pivot uh, pretty dramatically here uh, into the Catholic Church Um, because you are a practicing Catholic and we are no longer. So this is going to be an interesting conversation for us. Although we were raised Catholic and you were not. So (laughs) a little bit of a reversal there. You know, this is a podcast about growing up Catholic, though you're not our first guest who found Catholicism later in life or, you know, um, began practicing Catholicism later in life. Even though you were not raised Catholic, I would, we would just love to hear about sort of the religious and spiritual landscape of your childhood, whatever that looked like. Yeah, so I was actually raised very much a devout Christian. My dad was a Baptist minister when I was really young and then was a Methodist minister when I was a little older and on through high school. And he still works in the church now. So, I mean, our family was very much connected to Christianity, church stuff. And so that's sort of my religious background. I floated through several denominations before I became Catholic. And yeah, I've always considered myself to be a practicing Christian. And my conversion to Catholicism, despite all that, was very unexpected and kind of came out of nowhere for me after I kind of had a breaking point with the church, with Christianity, the institutional church. And then somehow I ended up in the big the biggest institutional church there. So, <laughs> yeah. so I was listening to a uh, your an interview, uh, a podcast, I believe was called Dorothy's Place that you 
you were on um, yes. and you mentioned uh, finding Eastern Orthodoxy first. I laughed out loud. I was walking my dog and listening and I sort of busted up laughing on the trail because you mentioned you're like, I knew Mary was a thing, but I didn't know it was like quite so big a thing. And that like sort of was what, what drew you in. And I just laugh because we we're always talking on this podcast. It's like, well, we've got Mary. That's our thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the main thing that everybody else has that Protestants don't have. And right. So it was, yeah. That's something, I, again, something I never saw coming that I would be like, oh, this is interesting. I want that because I grew up very much afraid of it, really, thinking it was there was something sinister about caring so much about Mary. Can you talk more about that? Can you give us a little bit of a narrative of that time in your life where you eventually came to to Catholicism? Uh, sure, but I should probably start a little bit before. Please. Because I, I was actually in a Protestant seminary in 2014, I think it was, for a very short time. I was just in it for one semester. But that was kind of when I started having major issues with Christianity as I knew it. Uh, I was living in New Orleans, I was going to a Baptist seminary, and I kind of saw the institutional side, the money side of things, the power side of things up close in a way that I hadn't seen when it was just like an individual, my father. I could see, you know, church is not everything it seems like to everyone else. I knew that already. But then seeing like this whole organization of people, a company and a corporation operating as a church, and I was just like, what is what's going on here? Why are people in this? Why does it feel so much like something other than Jesus and his, his, his thing? And so, yeah, I started having major questions. And again, I left seminary after a semester and kind of entered into this phase of doubt, I guess you could say, not doubt of Christianity, but doubt of everything that has built up around it. Again, the, the version of it that I knew. And so I had actually stopped going to church for about a year, shortly after that, I was able to hold on for a little while, but eventually I was like, no, it's, I, I can't do this for a while. And so I kind of took a break and eventually I came back, still still Protestant, still at that point I was non-denominational, but gradually started trying to get closer to something I felt like was more stripped down, less concerned about money, power, and appearances anyway. And so I actually joined a house church in San Francisco. I moved to San Francisco, believe it or not, from New Orleans to join a house church thing that I found out about about on the internet. So um, probably a few people can say that, but <laughs> <laughs> I moved cross country to join a fringe Protestant church movement. So yeah, after that, I um, I was in that for really only probably about six months in San Francisco because after seeing that up close, I realized you know maybe this thing that I thought was the problem isn't really the problem. Because I was, you know, in this church, nobody gets paid. We meet in a house. The group is like 10 people, but somehow it was still very institutional, still very top down. There were still mm. people calling the shots from, you know, on high. And you don't know those people. And it didn't feel that much different from what I had just spent those years trying to get away from. And so on Christmas 2018, I actually decided to visit an Eastern Orthodox church kind of randomly. I knew it was something different. It was not Catholicism, which I hated really at that time and my whole life up to that point. But I was like, okay, I've never been to an Eastern Orthodox church for anything other than a wedding. So I'll just go there Christmas. My house church was not meeting anyway. So I went, I was fascinated, kind of got caught up in all of that. And the house church, I met with the house church guys after I had been 
splitting my time between both churches. And he was like, well, if you're not going to be fully committed to our house church thing, we'd rather you just not come. Mm -hmm. And so that was, that was the end of my house church experiment. And I kind of went all in with the Orthodox church after that. And yeah, that kind of opened my world up to Mary again and <laughs> the sacraments and church history in a way I had never considered it before. And I think at that, around that point, I realized my issue was not so much with the fact that the church is an institution, but the fact that it was, I was affiliated with a version of that institution that was not really anchored in, didn't seem to be anchored in anything much more than, you know, the past, I guess, 200 or so years of American culture and its version of Christianity. And I couldn't put my finger on that, but I think around the time that I found Eastern Orthodoxy, I was like, yeah, Christianity should feel like it's super old and has roots in the very ancient past. And so again, I first found that in Orthodoxy and then eventually I found it in a in Catholicism where I also learned that my my own ancestors had been had been Catholics. Oh. Uh, yeah, back in Kentucky and Southern Indiana. And I had not known that at all until I was considering becoming Catholic. So yeah, it all came full circle and I was confirmed in December, 2019. Wow. Did you pretty quickly then decide to go to seminary? Uh, well, so the process to my conversion lasted from about, in the Catholic church was from about March 2019 to December. And during that whole time, I was, I guess, considering the idea because again, I had been in seminary before. Right. Once I was confident I was going to convert, I was like, well, you know, I could maybe do that that again. It's, it was in the back of my mind. And a lot of my friends in San Francisco were also discerning the priesthood. And I started attending meetings in San Francisco from the archdiocese. And so, yeah, I was just rattling the idea around in my head. But I hadn't, I wouldn't say that I was serious about it until early 2020, because that's when I moved back to New Orleans, met the Josephites. And went down that path. But before that, it was pretty much just going to like a monthly meeting and talking about it, but not, you know, sitting down, writing an application or or anything serious like that. So, so yeah, I guess you could say it was quick. It was about a year's process thinking about it, but that's the only way I know for it to have occurred because that's how it happened for me. <laughs> <laughs> what was the reaction that you had from your family or from, um, yeah, this sounds like a little bit of a whirlwind that you were going through personally. Um, for was, your family and your friend and your sort of social world, I guess. Yeah, I guess they were used to me making decisions <laughs> like that, major life decisions. Because again, I had just moved across right. the country to join a church. Before that, I had gone overseas to work with a basketball nonprofit in Asia. Wow. For a, a little while, six months or so. But, but yeah, I think my family and friends were kind of used to be making unusual decisions. And when it came to an unusual an unusual spiritual decision, I think there was the added comfort for them that like, you know, at least I was practicing Christianity fully mm -hmm. again, because, you know, all my friends and family mostly are practicing Protestant Christians. But, but yeah, my parents specifically, they were like, yeah, go for it. If you feel like God is calling you in that That's direction, right. go for it. So mm -hmm. yeah, that was great. That was really cool. So then if I have this timeline correct, do you also... In 2020, was that also when you started the Black Catholic Messenger? Yeah, about wow. nine months after. Well, yeah, probably about nine months after I was confirmed was when we founded Black Catholic Messenger. 
Wow. It's been a whirlwind of a couple of years for you. Yeah. On top of the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you're doing this probably all from, yeah, from, while social distancing from people. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I'm a pandemic Catholic. I like to say <laughs> most of my Catholic life so far has been, yeah, in this strange world we live in now. But yeah, I gave the opportunity to, you know, try new things, especially internet-based things. And yeah. <laughs> that was bad. <laughs> That's funny. I've heard of, you know, pandemic marriages, pandemic babies, but pandemic conversions and seminary is the new one. And yeah, I love it. Media publications. I mean, <laughs> and, and media publications. Right. Yeah, It's a strange time to be alive. <laughs> this is a pandemic podcast. So, yeah. Oh, really? Yep. Yep. I think a similar kind of thing. Just a, <laughs> yeah, something, you know, something about being stuck in your house. You realize there's never going to be a perfect time. And maybe this is the time, I think. Yeah, you know, the world's ending. Might as well try something new. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. There's something about your story that keeps like reminding me a little bit of my brother because like there's he was always drawn to religion. It wasn't a particular religion, but as a young kid, I've never seen another young kid who was like, I'll just read the Bible tonight. As as you grow up Catholic, I don't know if you know this, but we were not raised with the Bible. Um that's not a thing that happens for not us. Not directly from the source, no. No, we just listen to the stories. Yeah. So he, I was like, why are you reading the Bible? Um, and then when we went on a family trip one time, we lost him and we found him with some nuns. He was always like there. So it seems as though like no matter all these crazy places that you've gone on your journey, you you keep coming back to like religion. And Christianity in particular. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I was very much raised to rely on the Christian faith, stay connected to the Christian faith, no matter what I'm doing, where I am. And yeah, that has stuck with me. It's colored, as you can see, most just about everything I do. Yeah. Even when I, I start, want to start a new business, you know, it's it's a, <laughs> a Catholic news publication. <laughs> maybe maybe it's a Midwest thing. Everybody <laughs> in the Midwest is, is practicing something, <laughs> some type of religion, <laughs> usually Christianity. So I don't know, culturally speaking, yeah. I'm probably a product of my environment. So can you tell us a little bit more about the Black Catholic Messenger? How did that come to be and, and what's been your, your goal with that publication? Yeah. So again, it was 2020 in the midst of the pandemic. And I guess, you know, I was already a very online person and I guess probably more so that year. And I was trying to find Catholic stuff everywhere because, you know, I'm a new Catholic and want to know everything I can. I was confirmed, but, you know, still don't know everything, really don't know much at all. <laughs> and so I was trying to find a, a media publication that kind of aligned with my culture's expression of Catholicism, because that was part of what drew me into the faith was knowing that there were, there's a long tradition of African-American Catholics and African-American Catholic parishes and music and theology, spirituality, but I could not find a Black Catholic media publication. Mm. You know, I knew there were lots of other regular media publications, America Magazine, National Catholic Reporter, EWTN stuff. But I was like, where's, how do, how can there be so many black Catholics? I knew there were about 3 million, but no publication, regular publication, weekly, daily, putting out stuff from our perspective. So I started asking around and people told me about the Knights of Peter Claver's quarterly publication. The Josephites also have a quarterly publication, but nothing more regular than that, nothing more frequent than that. And I thought that was so strange. And so I basically just put out a call saying, so would anybody like to try to make this sort of thing happen? 
I believe I did that on Facebook primarily. And so people reached out and said, yeah, we'd be interested. And so we got a small group together and by October, 2020, we were ready to, to launch. And that's exactly what we did. We, we wanted to have people talking about our news from our perspective and doing it on a regular basis, not just in like a magazine format. Somehow we've been keeping it going. Wow. So what do you think most, I guess, non-Black Catholics and particularly white American Catholics, I mean, what do you think people don't know about Black Catholicism and the history there? Well, related to some reading I was doing last night, and this was not new to me, but I just got some new books about it, so I'm ready to talk about it. Great. (laughs) Most people do not know that the oldest city in America is in St. Augustine, Florida. That is the oldest. Okay. My parents live right outside of there. So we are always like, it's the oldest place. I didn't know. I Nobody didn't know. knows that though. You know, I asked, I asked a lady, an older lady at the parish here in Houston where I'm staying at. And I said, do you know where the oldest city in America is? And she said, oh, it's probably in the Northeast. Right. Oldest colonial city. I gave her that clue. She said, oh, it's probably in the Northeast. I was like, no, not even close. But I think most people probably think that because... St. Augustine, Florida is just not something that comes up much in that historical conversation. Like crazy Ponce de Leon down there. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, the idea of Spanish colonialism in the eastern United States and southern United States, I don't think people are... We don't talk about it. No, they know about New Orleans and France, but they don't know that New Orleans was once owned by the Spanish. Mm -hmm. Louisiana was. And so Florida was as well. St. Augustine, Florida. That's actually where the first... Black Catholics came to the United States Mm -hmm. in the early 16th century. In the 1520s, a Black explorer came through, and then in uh, the Mission Nombre de Dios in St. Augustine, a whole group of free Black people came there with the Spanish and helped start that, that city, that colony. And so that's where Black Catholic history really starts in what will become the United States. And I don't think most Black Catholics even know that, no less... (laughs) black catholics and so you know i think my mission for the next several years will be championing not just black catholicism in general but specifically like how long we've been here and been helping to form what catholicism means in the u.s Mm. because you know those stories are apparently very quickly forgotten and that's a tragedy and like these two books that i got last night about black society in spanish florida i don't think most people know these books exist and they're not in ebook format anywhere. Like I'm seeing stuff in there now that I've seen learning for the first time. And so I'm like, there should be more out there. More people should know about this. More of it should be online, readable. And so, yeah, that's that's number one. Number one thing most people don't know about Black Catholics. We've been here since the 1500s. Wow. It's funny, uh, as we also do this podcast, we've delved into like the history of the sacraments. Like how did they actually come to be? We've done a couple episodes and I, again, just accepted so much being raised in the church as just, I didn't investigate it. And the extent to which I, I wish I could remember all of it, but I just wasn't aware of how much Catholic history happened in Africa because of the Eurocentric vision of our church, mm-hmm. um, especially in, in North Africa. Um, and just like the, the people that made the church what it is today are very that's it's from this geographical area and we're just not taught that yeah and i think it's part of that's uniquely american because you know if you go around to certain cities in europe 
they've had black Madonnas in their churches, mm -hmm. you know, venerated for hundreds and hundreds of years. And it would have never crossed their mind that like black was bad. Right. And so that was, that was kind of an idea that was uh, cultivated mostly here in the new world. And so Europe kind of knows more about those roots and is more connected to those roots than we are sometimes black Catholics or otherwise over here. So yeah, it's just a, it's just a super fascinating topic to think about, but yeah, our, our history overall, you know, African descent Catholics goes all, all the way back to the beginning. Hmm. Yeah. I think just one of the paradoxes I think we're always thinking about when it comes to the Catholic church, like the sort of whitewashing and Westernization of Christianity, um, you know, on our social media, I think we posted a meme that was like in Catholic schools, boys weren't allowed to have long hair, but there was a picture of some a boy with long hair in every <laughs> room, and he's like the main boy was the joke. Um, but is that and that never occurred to me as a kid. Like Jesus never wore pants. I had the opportunity to attend mass a couple times when I was living in India. I've talked about sort of the universal feeling of like, I knew what was going on in mass and it felt like home, even though I was in a different part of the world. Yeah. But additionally, there was just something about the fact that like things just look a little more like what you imagine things look like in the Bible, right? Like there were mm -hmm. just cows and goats on the street and men do wear dotis. You know, there are men with longer hair who wear dotis or not wearing Western style pants. And there's just things where it's like, there are pieces of things happening here culturally that we will never get close to at a mass in the US, right? Just the way people yeah. dress. And obviously things have changed a lot there as well from, you know, 2000 years ago and things were not exactly the same in those two parts of the world, but it feels a little closer in some ways. The landscape, like I was actually, you know, lived in a city that was in a desert. So just that alone felt a little more similar to something biblical. But I just remember having that feeling of like, oh, there's something here that like, makes a little more sense. You can picture Jesus a little more here, or at least I could, yeah. you know, more than like on the southwest side of Chicago with where like a very exciting mass, there were bagpipes. Like bagpipes are great, but like <laughs> culturally pretty far removed from, yeah, you know, yeah. from uh, Jesus of Nazareth. So It's a fascinating thing. The, uh, the canonization of local cultures is a strange, strange phenomenon that, I hopefully one day, yeah, I would love to attend mass outside of the U.S. It's, it's on my bucket list just to experience that universality. Mm -hmm. When I went to that mass, I said hi to the priest afterwards, and he uh, had gone to seminary in Loyola, at Loyola in Chicago, where I was from. What? So, you know, it's Catholicism is a small world, I think, yeah. in the end, is what you learn. <laughs> the, the global church. Yeah, Absolutely. Before we go too far from this, I imagine a question a lot of people have thinking about going to seminary in Catholicism, the main difference, right, is uh, celibacy and this commitment to never be married or have children. Yeah. What was that like for you to commit to that? Or was that something you would, was that something you had already wanted for your life to just focus on your ministry? Was that a decision you had to to grapple with it was not a conscious decision i had made but it was certainly one i was living long before i became catholic or discerned the priesthood which is part of the reason i considered for the priesthood so soon after i converted mm. because i realized i was living this life that most people think is super hard and they just wouldn't want i was like okay i've been doing this already for like <laughs> 10 years so you know what's another however much longer <laughs> i live <laughs> and, uh, so yeah that, that was 
it wasn't so strange a decision for me because I had made it unconsciously mm. a long time ago. Okay. And to me, I've just life is just easier as a single person. So I was I was ready in some ways to make that commitment before I even realized it. And but yeah, just as a concept, it's it's obviously antithetical to what we do in America. And there's not this long tradition of, you know, celibate Catholic priests in this country because we haven't been a country for that long and we're not very Catholic, haven't been very Catholic in the history of the United States. So celibacy is kind of antithetical to American culture and especially millennial culture and Generation Z. So it's just a strange decision to make culturally, but for me, it was not personally a very big leap we've talked about in the past on the one hand i think especially having a family i totally see the value if your life is dedicated to ministry of not having a family (laughs) i will say before i was married i was getting my master's degree in theater for youth and communities i was so dedicated to the work i was doing Mm -hmm. To my detriment, I mean, I was doing things I wasn't getting paid for. I think Stephanie and I are both uh, similar in this, loving the work we're doing, feeling so called to it as a mission, and just feeling like this is what I'm going to do, and getting a master's degree in something that was really never going to pay me very well, if I was completely honest. Debt forever. Mm. (laughs) Right? And then getting married, and then getting a house, and then having a baby, and your priorities shift so greatly, and even things that I was so passionate about. I want to give my time to these things, but I also have a family to provide for. I have children to spend time with. Yeah, Clearly lots of people do it. Most denominations, clergy people often have families, but it sounds hard. On the one hand, I feel like we're excluding people in the Catholic church who want to have a family and who maybe would be really good priests, men and women, I think. But on the other hand, I do see how it makes sense to not have a family if, if your life is dedicated to ministry. So, Yeah, it's, it's an interesting concept in our wing of the Catholic Church. But, you know, like I said, I was I was on the brink of becoming Eastern Orthodox before I became Catholic. So the first priest that I knew personally and had learned so much about Christianity from was actually a married person. So mm-hmm. he had a couple of kids and was uh, married, obviously. And so I my first concept of the priesthood seen up close was was a married person and so i knew it was possible but at the same time i was like it's not for me and it's not the practice in most of the catholic Mm -hmm. church so it was something i just came to terms with so we don't have too many people who are in seminary on on our podcast as of yet so something we have talked about is the sort of the other side of that which is except if you know, you're in the church accepting guidance as a married couple or a single person from people who are not practicing their sexuality or uh, who are not married. So from your perspective, like how do you as a soon-to-be priest or as priests, how do you find, um, how does counsel come without experience? Uh, that's a good question. And I am early in my seminary formation, so I probably should not <laughs> pontificate about, about that. But I think one thing that may help is learning from the lives of the saints in the church who are not, you know, celibate people, uh-huh. because there's lots of 
lots of people that shape what the Catholic Church is and uh, show the best examples of what a Catholic is who were married, um, who were women, who who did not have to be priests to show that, or to be a great Catholic, a great person. So, I mean, as a person in training, I think it's my responsibility from to learn from those people and also from people who, who are alive right now and, and kicking ass and you take those as your as your guides, your models, and you give that that advice to to the people that you counsel. But as you mentioned, there's always going to be that gap, and we can't possibly understand what that what that life is like. So some things you just have to say, you know, <laughs> trust God, talk to God, trust Him, and if you need forgiveness for your sins, we're here. <laughs> Fair you know, you were talking about the history of. Black Catholicism, but just thinking about the history of the church in general, we go back to this a lot. Neither of us is a practicing Catholic currently. I do credit the Catholic Church, particularly the Sisters of Mercy and the lay women who taught me in high school at my attended the largest all girls Catholic high school in the U.S. Uh, Mother Macaulay. Uh, <laughs> just, just shout it out. <laughs> The, the Sisters of Mercy, they get around. Yeah, so I do credit, I was searching for a, some language around social justice. And I think yeah. I began to find that in high school from my theology classes, from my history classes taught by Catholic lay women is where I started to, I think, get the language for some of that. That all came from Catholic social teaching. So on the one hand, I really do credit the Catholic Church with like the beginning of my passion for social justice. On the other hand, I feel like the more you dig into history, the more it's just like, oh no, the Catholic Church did this and then they did this. And it's just like, it's horrifying and it makes me want to run in the other direction. I also feel like at kind of any big powerful entity at any point in history, like you're going to dig up some, some dirty stuff. So yeah, I don't know. How do you grapple with it? Cause it's a constant question on this podcast for sure. Yeah. Um, I think during that nine month process, when I was trying to become Catholic, that was a major struggle for me because if I was going to join based on what the church has done, it would have been really bad. Would have never come anywhere near it. But I guess at some point, I decided I had to join for what the church is, hmm. you know, on paper, in its best form, what it claims to be, I guess, ontologically, to use a big word. Because I think at the at the end of the day, that's that's what makes Catholicism go, is, you know, the, the claims to being the universal church, the church founded by Jesus, the church, well, I guess one of a few churches where you can receive the Eucharist as the real body, blood, soul, divinity of Jesus. You know, if those are the things that matter, then yeah, I can become Catholic. And I can, I guess, try to make sense of the horrible things that the church has actually done off paper to people in, especially in my community. You know, as an African-American, the church has a horrible track record on slavery, even in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, I think the Sisters of Mercy specifically, they, they own slaves in the United States. The Sisters of Mercy, the Jesuits, all the people who get me a little bit hopeful right now. Yeah, horrible track record. Horrible past. But I think that's perhaps an example of the fact that, you know, today, those those are people that I, myself, would go to for the vision of the Catholic Church that focuses on social justice and represents the better, the best side of the Catholic Church, what the Catholic Church really is. So the fact that they could be that today while having these horrible pasts, I guess, is kind of a witness to the fact that, you know, what you do at your worst 
is not necessarily who you are, especially today. So I, so I was able to look at the Catholic Church in 2019 and say, you know, there are, there are things that have to be wrestled with historically, but there are also things that are never going to change <laughs> about the church, good things. And those are the things that I joined for. And those are the things that were not offered former Christian tradition. So, mm. I mean, but, you know, it's still something I struggle with now. I mean, I, like I said, I'm going to read these books about Black people in Spanish Florida, and it's not all going to be pretty. It's some of it probably going to make me want to say, make me want to puke. So, so it will, it will be a constant struggle. Mm-hmm. And there, there will always be that tension specifically for me, again, as an African-American, because there's a lot of bad history there. But yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm I'm Catholic for the long haul. I think <laughs> I'm gonna stick around for the for the good stuff. <laughs> so I have a related question. I don't. Maybe you kind of already answered it, but you know, for me, I'm involved in some equity work in the community I'm in, and it can feel. I mean, as a white person, obviously, nothing compared to how hard it is for people of color to do this work. But it can feel mm. totally just deflating. I think the one space where it feels a little less deflating is at the church that I belong to and you can see that I sometimes show up to on Sundays, but always show up to, we have a reparations committee at my little Methodist church with the big sign that says Jesus was radically inclusive on the side. Yes. And it's not super well organized. It's a tiny church committee and we've all seen how those work, but there's something about like that. It's a bunch of people who have similar values and there's something spiritual that's fueling us. And, and I've read like civil rights leaders talk about this, that when you have that spiritual peace, that it somehow can fuel you even in those moments that feel hard. So I'm curious for you how you see your work in social justice, how that fuses with your spiritual practice. Do those things kind of feed each other in, in the way that I'm that I'm imagining they do? I guess in, in my best moments, they they intersect and it's always fun to, to have those moments. You're like, oh, yeah, it actually it's all fitting together. And thankfully, the religious community that I'm, you know, in, in formation with, that's one of their focuses. And so obviously their spirituality is merged with social justice just by nature mm-hmm. because they were founded to serve African-Americans. So like social justice is their thing on the books. <laughs> so yeah, when, when we get together and pray every day, you know, we're literally reading prayers about God uh, granting justice and us working for justice. So so yeah, I would say that my spirituality is is intertwined with Catholic social teaching in a way that it may not be for the average Catholic, especially for the average U.S. Catholic, perhaps. And yeah, I'm I'm incredibly grateful for that because that's that's the version of Catholicism that I that I joined for. That's that's the mm-hmm. vision of Catholicism that I think Pope Francis is you know begging American Catholic leaders to to get on board with. And so so yeah, for me it will be it will define what Catholicism is for me, is that, that fusion. And yeah, it will be what, it will be the standard I'm held to as, as a Josephite, I hope. So. Mm. Did you seek the Josephites out or is that who you were first introduced to? Uh, it's a good question. Cause I was, that whole time I was in San Francisco, obviously I never met a Josephite, but I'm trying to think if I met a religious priest at all. Mm. I may have met a Jesuit cause I went to the Jesuit church on the campus of University of San Francisco a few times, but I guess it wasn't really on my radar, yeah. religious life, but I also wouldn't say I sought them out. They were just, they happened to be the parish closest to my parents' house when I moved back to New go. Orleans. And I did kind of want to go to a Josephite parish because I'd read about them before mm-hmm. and it happened to be really convenient. I could walk <laughs> there. So yeah, after 
participating in that parish in New Orleans for a while was that was when I applied to join. So, yeah, I guess in a way they sought me <laughs> out, but not not consciously, just being in books about Black Catholic history, signaling to, to you. Yeah. I guess that's one of those Holy Spirit things. That's what our our always. former guest Kay would say. Uh-huh. It's always the Holy Spirit. Yeah, he's subtle. <laughs> What I find interesting is, you know, we've had a wide variety of guests on, but it seems that the people we've had on that are practicing or in most, I don't know, filled with Catholic faith in particular, are people who came to it as adults. Even though we have a podcast about growing up Catholic, it feels everyone we have that grew Mm -hmm. up Catholic became a lapsed Catholic. (laughs) That's been the trend. You're new to this religion and whatnot, but from your perspective, is there something, I mean, you left your childhood religion, you lapsed from that. Is there some, yeah. something I feel like is there about like finding, you can see Catholicism from a perspective as an adult that we just couldn't as children. And then as we became adults, it is something to rebel against. I'm not sure what that journey is, but I'm wondering if you've met other people who were raised Catholic who are still practicing or if most of the other people you met have come to it as adults or what you think might be the, the lesson in this story from your, from your point of view. So almost all the Catholics I knew when I was considering converting when I was in San Francisco were raised Catholic. Some of them were reverts though. So they had left uh-huh. and then came back and Obviously, I'm not an expert in why people, <laughs> the average person leaves the Catholic Church. But my guess would be a person who's raised in the faith, the core of their faith, the first version they learn is something that's given to them. Yeah. They have no say in how that's processed or how it's processed before it gets to them and in some ways how it's processed after it gets to them. Like it's it's formed by someone else. You, your version of Catholicism is, is in many ways formed by someone else. Whereas adult converts, we we do it ourselves. We we have no choice. We seek it yeah. out. We uh, we have to do this research. We uh, we have to get rid of our misconceptions and and really wrestle with it before we decide we're going to become Catholic. And so when we do make that decision, it's very much our Catholicism. It's something that we have made sense of ourselves for ourselves. Whereas that would not be the case if we learned. You know, our Catholic ABC is when mm-hmm. we were infants, toddlers, kids, because you're just going to accept it probably uncritically at that age. And it's just going to be what it is. And if it, if you happen to get handed a version that's messed, really messed up, yeah, you're going to grow up and be like, yeah, I want out. Right. So, uh, yeah, that would be my guess of how that how that turns out. But I do not know a ton of adult converts like myself. So, hmm. That's just my assumption of how we how we end up becoming Catholic. But a lot of people convert to get to marry a Catholic. So yeah, there's also that. True. Yeah, RCIA is no joke. That's a committed person who converts for for their. Spouse. My RCIA story is a, is a little strange, but yes, it, that that statement is very true. <laughs> Wait, well, tell us about your. Yeah, you RCIA. can't just say it was yeah. strange and not tell us. <laughs> so. Fun fact, hope, I, hope nobody hears this, I shouldn't hear this, but I never finished my PA. Ah. I, yeah, so it's, it's not required. Most people do not no. know that. Especially for people who were practicing Christians of another variety mm. that the church deems, you know, acceptable, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. You don't have to do RCIA. You can ask 
a priest to just you know go through it personally with you mm. because you don't necessarily need the cap the christian abcs ah. that most people would who are converting from a whole nother religion that's who rcia is supposed to be for people who you know don't know about the trinity don't know about jesus don't know about the bible that's who that's supposed to be for that's why it's like a whole year-long class mm -hmm. but for me i was sitting in that class like I don't need to learn all this stuff all over again. <laughs> part of it was probably pride. Probably part of it was just I did not want to sit and wait for a year to become Catholic after like doing all this research myself before that. And so I was first in an RCA class for maybe a few months, like five, six months. And then I was like, all right, I don't want to keep waiting. So I went to another parish that I was attending to join their RCIA class. But it was kind of more of the same. Like it was a much more progressive parish and it was actually a black parish. The first one I was at was not. But again, I was still going to have to sit through this long class and learn a bunch of stuff I didn't care to to go through again. And so eventually I, I convinced the pastor at the parish where I was going to daily mass to just, you know, basically quiz me. Like, do you really know about what you're trying to join? And then confirm me soon after that. And he agreed to that. And so I was confirmed maybe two months after I had that conversation with him. And... That was that. So I maybe did half of an RCIA class at one parish, way less than that at another parish, and then just got confirmed. All right. As an adult convert, do you get to pick a confirmation name? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, get to is an interesting way to phrase that. Uh, I think, I think our big friend I think passage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you're kids, you do it. I think you're supposed to, no matter what. Confirmation, you're supposed to pick a name. Yeah. But I was not asked to, yeah. and I didn't. I guess that was one thing I didn't know about. <laughs> Something I had not done research on. So I just got confirmed without a confirmation name. And then when people asked me later, I was like, uh, I could just make one up. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so? Uh, so I think I've told people St. Paul because I like the Bible a lot. And he wrote most of the New Testament. So that's a good one. That's my guy. But, you know, sometimes I waffle on that. And I think St. Francis, because that was the first saint I ever prayed to. Yeah. I was born on his feast day. So. I think he played a big part in my spiritual journey thus far. Mm. So who knows? I like Those are my patron saints, I'll say, but not my confirmation oh. saints. I'd say I'm definitely more of a Francis fan than a Paul fan. I've got some beef with Paul. <laughs> yeah, she but does. I, that's also, <laughs> yeah, this... but I also haven't studied, as as we know, We I didn't actually learn the Bible in a meaningful way as a child, mm -hmm. and I'm just kind of piecemealing it together as an adult. So, Whereas I was made to read the Bible cover to cover before I was in middle school i think yeah nope. <laughs> that's, we're very impressed i learned a bunch of prayers i memorized a bunch of prayers i said a bunch of rosaries but couldn't and see so I, and I don't have prayers i don't have memorized prayers and i'm, yeah. a, I'm a horrible prayer to this day so. <laughs> but i know the bible <laughs> no i was gonna say have you been indoctrinated into talking about patron saints like if you lose something do you know who to pray to <laughs> Oh, yeah. And there's a story behind that because way before I became Catholic, my godmother's sister, I think, or her best friend, I think it's her sister though, she was Catholic. And so she would say the prayer to God, who is it? Is it Saint Anthony? Yes. Ding, yeah. ding, 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 ding. She would say this prayer, and both my godmother and I thought it was ridiculous, but I remembered it forever after that. I was like, okay, so that's what you pray to when something's lost. Yeah. But I've never done, I never prayed that prayer when something got lost. I so just, I'm, I'm not. I just beg them. <laughs> I, I don't, I'm not a super big advocate of, of, of that, but maybe I should be. Well, 
it's yeah one of those things you just can't escape when you're when you're raised in it for sure i don't i don't feel like that was such a big thing for my family in particular saint anthony maybe for my grandma but let me tell you the other night we could not find my son's uh special stuffed dinosaur before bedtime and Mm -hmm. i did break out the saint anthony and did you find it uh i found it the next morning so it was, a, it was a delayed, <laughs> but it worked. It did work. I found it as soon as he went to school the next morning. There you go. I was really interested when, when Anne reached out to you to ask you to be on our podcast, your response was about Pope Francis and his call to include lapsed Catholics in continuing dialogue for the Catholic Church moving forward. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask you about that because we've had some interesting reactions to having this podcast. I know one person, I think Anne found on Reddit, maybe, that thought we were doing a long con, that we're secretly going to try to convert people through the course of this podcast, which I, I love that they- Posing as lapsed Catholics. I can't play in that far out. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Hmm. It's flattering. They think we're on top of things in that way. And we've had a couple responses of people who are just angry. We're, We're talking about Catholicism at all being lapsed. So I'm curious that call that Pope Francis put out. I was very intrigued because I'm. I guess there's a part of me that's suspicious, of like like our long con friend. I'm like, well, why are you trying to get us back? Like, what is this? And what's to be gained from this conversation from the Catholic Church's point of view? I suppose. Like, why do you think it's important? A lot of people leave for very legitimate reasons, and the Church has is obviously flawed a flawed institution. And, you know, I almost want to take that back because it's such a cliche phrase and it means nothing. The church has done things, horrible things, has sinned in ways that cause people to leave the church. Mm-hmm. And the church has to acknowledge that and also make changes so that that doesn't keep happening. Because if they want people to stay in the faith or they want people to return to the faith, they have to own up to the things they've done. Obviously, that's not the only reason people leave the Catholic Church, but I think it's a big reason. Pope Francis recognizes that. He'll be the first to say when the church has done XYZ thing wrong, I think, and that's something he can be commended for. Something wrong according to the church's own own laws, own right. standards. And so I think part of the reason it's very important during this synod process in his mind and in his administration's minds is that, you know, we have to learn where we failed and learn where we can make changes and learn why people who might want to be Catholic feel like they can't be. And so he's, he's, you know, making this global huge thing. I think I saw the other day, it's like the largest consultation process in the history of the modern world or something like that. I mean, yeah, it's like a billion plus people. And he's saying more than a billion. Well, no, yeah, I guess a billion. That's how many Catholics there are. But, But yeah, he wants to hear from everybody, especially people who, who, have, who are on the margins. And so, yeah, I mean, why else would he want to do that unless he felt like those voices mattered and would move the church toward change, positive change? And I think that's why a lot of people are upset about the Senate and they don't like it. <laughs> is because it's the prospect of things changing and some people are not ready for that, but apparently Pope Francis is. So probably won't make every change everybody wants, but- Well, that's hard. Yeah, but I, I think good things are on the horizon from from this process. Well, Nate, thank you so much. I feel like we could talk for another hour. Oh, yeah. I was like, let's keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we can have you back on. We have a way of keeping in touch with our previous guests. So This is true. Please do keep in touch. 
how can people find you? Like I said, I'm very online. You can find me on all the social media platforms. My username on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And TikTok is N-A-T-E-M-U-P, Natum Up. And you can also find my writing in Black Catholic Messenger. I write a lot for them. And you can find us on social media as well. Also at blackcatholicmessenger.com. I write there several times a week. So I have to say the writing on that blackcatholicmessenger.com is really exquisite. It's really well written. Um, many articles, not just yours, um, but many. Oh, yeah, well, I love it. It's the team, very much a team. Right? So I do recommend all of our listeners to check it out. Same. I'm a writing snob. I love it. I like, it's just yeah. really well written. And also yeah. I want to recommend on your YouTube channel, uh, you have a race and Catholicism in America, a coat of many colors, which came up first. Mm-hmm. For anyone who is interested in learning more about Black Catholicism, I think it was like 20 dense minutes of like a lot that I learned very quickly. So I do recommend that as well. And your voice, which we've not even discussed. And I'm mad at ourselves for not even talking about your beautiful singing voice. Oh, oh yeah. Mm. We're not going to ask you to sing right now. No. But folks can go find that. That'll get people to go look for you. I told you I was in theater, musical theater. That was That's right. Wait, was this in was that in high school or when was this? Uh-huh, middle school, high school. Give us a, a role that you played that you were particularly proud of. A fave role. Oh, come on. Roger and Hammerstein Cinderella. I was the prince. Yes! <gasps> oh my gosh. I remember it fondly. I love it so much. That's a good one. That's a really good one. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That that's a fun like um two truths and a lie or like fun things about <laughs> me. That'll be like fun facts about father once you're <laughs> once you're Oh place. yes. I will Oh yeah, you've got homily material. <laughs> oh goodness. <laughs> So we do a virtual collection basket every episode. Uh, mm-hmm. Where would you invite our listeners to donate to this week? Shameless plug. Donate to the Black Catholic Messenger Summer Giving Campaign. BlackCatholicMessenger.com slash donate. Nice. Great. And I also would like to add to that. We did not get a chance to do Catholicism in the News this week, but Everytown USA, the, I think gun violence is on a lot of folks' minds. So I'm going to link to that as well in our show notes. Please do. Yes. Our good uh, Catholic race sister, Amanda Gorman, was part of that fundraiser. Yes. And listeners, of course, can always reach out to us at lapspodcast at gmail.com, lapspodcast.com. And we now have a voicemail number. People can call 505-6-LAPSED. So if folks have reactions to this episode or questions for us or anything, um, you can call in and we might play it on the show. So, yep. New development for us. All right. Thank you so much, Nate. Thank you so, so much for being with us. Thank you guys for having me on. It's been wonderful. Well, can't end without saying Steph and Nate, also with you. And also with you. (laughs) And also with you.